Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Uh, Good afternoon or good morning, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, My name is Rob Levinson. I am the Senior Defense Analyst here at Bloomberg Government. And what we hope to be the uh, first of many uh, conversations about interesting issues in national security in the world of uh, government spending and government contracting. And today uh, I'm going to have a conversation on a very timely topic, the uh, upcoming negotiations between uh, President Donald Trump and the leader of North Korea, Mr. Uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, to talk about the potential for denuclearizing uh, the uh, North Korea. And so I'm joined today by somebody who, when you read their her resume, it would be hard to imagine somebody more qualified to talk about this issue. So I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Um, you can go to her full uh, resume. That's It's posted on the Brookings Institution uh, website. But uh, this is Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. Uh, so she is currently the president of Global... Global Connections Empowering Global Change, LLC, and the founder and president of the Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation. Uh, Prior to this, Jenkins was a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House. Previously, she was ambassador at the UN Department of State from 2009 to 17, where she served as coordinator for threat reduction programs in the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation. In that role, Jenkins coordinated the Department of State's programs and activities to prevent weapons of mass destruction, terrorism with programs funded by other U.S. departments and agencies, also with similar programs funded by other countries. She served as U.S. representative to the 30-nation G7 Global Partnership against a spread of weapons of materials of mass destruction and chaired the Global Partnership in 2012. Um, to give you an idea, so she's worked on all sorts of nuclear non-proliferation issues, uh, all sorts of other WMD, chemical, biological Vast experience. She's also a lawyer. Uh, welcome today, Bonnie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. Uh, so we're going to get right into it, sort of, um, you know, a prelude to the uh, upcoming uh, negotiations with uh, with North Korea. As I said, we're supposed to occur as of right now on the twelfth of June in Singapore. So obviously, the uh, the first question on everybody's mind is. You know, how sincere do we think uh, the leader of North Korea is? He says he's willing to put denuclearization on the table, and that's what he's willing to talk about. Uh, Do we think he's really sincere? Uh, Well, I think there's two ways to look uh, look at that question and ways to answer that question. First of all, there's obviously a history with North Korea where we've had agreements with them in the past that seemed successful, that in the end, of course, were not successful. Um, mainly due to activities that they did after the agreement. So there's a lot of skepticism, um, understandably, about whether North Korea is sincere about what it wants to do, whether uh, North Korea is sincere about all the overtures it's making about denuclearization. Um, And so you're going to naturally have skeptics because there's a history of that and concern about uh, his regime and his past actions on a number of things. On the other hand, we do need to take uh, stock of the fact that um, he has been taking uh, steps and making statements that are very much unlike things that he's done uh, since he took over uh, power in, in 2011. 
Um, and so there's a lot of uh, a lot of a lot out there to make one say that maybe he really is sincere. He's holding meetings with uh, leaders from different countries. Um, he obviously made the overture for the summit with the United States. He has made statements about denuclearization that he wants to do that. He's made statement about uh, you know recognizing the need to have you know military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea. Um, and he's made a number of other statements regarding uh, future peace agreements, uh, exchange of uh, families in North and South Korea, and it goes on and on. And of course, the release of the three uh, American prisoners. So there's also a belief that maybe there is something there, that maybe there is some sincerity. So you have these two competing factors of, of well, there is a history of North Korea overall. Um, and on the other hand, you have these steps which do seem as if maybe he's serious. So I guess the best answer to that is we have to wait and see what happens. He's certainly giving the signs that he's serious. He's certainly giving the signs that he really does want to make something happen and have some kind of success. So at this point, we just have to wait and see what happens with the negotiations and see what happens between now and, and, uh, and June 12th. And to be fair, the, the history that you talk about where things have, have you know, we've had some agreements of, those were not with him. Those were not Those with, with his father or his grandfather as mm -hmm. they have ruled. Right. So this is the first time that sort of he's were engaging with him. And we know it's a highly personalistic dictatorship, if you will. Mm -hmm. So just because grandpa and dad didn't necessarily follow through do not necessarily mean that he won't. Right. And that's one of the, that's one of the uh, positives that one can say is that maybe it's going to be different from um, his father and grandfather. And maybe this is an opportunity for him to show that maybe he will be, you know, will 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 take a different route. So that's another reason to think that maybe there is something positive. That yeah. Can. Now he he obviously has, in some ways, also more cards to play than his father grandfather because we know we know he has an active nuclear weapon which his father had as well. But we now know that they have a ballistic missile mm -hmm. which appears to have, based on the calculations, the range to hit the United States if he wanted to. Now we don't know that they've been able to marry a nuclear warhead to a ballistic missile. But it appears that they're pretty close to, you know, having that capability. So he has a bigger bargaining chip, if you will, on his side of the table, too. Is that fair? Right. I think he definitely feels as if he has much more that he can bring to the table now. And that he has, he has a much stronger position at the table than, you know, his father or his, or his grandfather could have had. So I think the, the, the number of tests that he did uh, last year, for example, with the nuclear test and the missile test, I think he comes to the table feeling as if, I have much more strength on my side, on the military side, but also because he's been doing these overtures and because he's been taking these steps that make it appear like, well, I have also on not just the military side, but on the diplomatic side, I've done a lot. So I come to the table with a lot more uh, that I can bargain with. Yeah, that, that definitely seems true. So let's, let's suppose for the sake of argument that he is sincere and President Trump goes there and they begin a process which of course it would just begin a process obviously a lot of the details would have to work out but let's say that he's willing to put full denuclearization as we understand it on the table he's willing to do that mm -hmm. we're going to talk about what that might look like in a second but first of all what is he likely to ask for in return i mean obviously uh you know economic relief relief from sanctions perhaps full trade maybe even some economic assistance that seems sort of a given that that would be a minimum. But there's also other things that have been talked about and then sort of walked away from, but the departure of US troops on the peninsula. We have some 26, 28,000 troops and aircraft. Um, the end, formal end of the Korean War, it hasn't really ended, it's just an armistice. 
uh, perhaps a pledge of non-aggression, things like that. So what do you think that he would want out of this deal if he's giving up his, his nukes? Well, certainly the first category of things that you mentioned, I think that's definitely one of those, those are some things that definitely will be, I assume he's going to want on the table if he's going to even consider denuclearization. Um, he's made it clear, I think, that denuclearization will have to be married with steps that make him feel, I guess, quote unquote, comfortable or secure in the region. Um, so that would mean, obviously, things like, you know, economic, uh, not just security, but economic security, um, more diplomacy with, with, with countries in the U.S. and with continued diplomacy with other countries in the region, um, a security guarantee, those kind of things, like you said. Um, but I also think, I mean, he's already said, you know, he, he wants to have, uh, at the end of the, uh, end of the Korean War, um, he wants to work with, with South Korea on those issues as well. Um, he's also made that clear. He's made clear that he wants to have, you know, more interaction with South Korea, uh, with the families. Um, so I think that, yes, he will look for those things you said in the first category, the obvious things. But I do think he's going to want some of these other things that I think will help him feel more secure in the region overall, not just in the military sense, but also, you know, in the Korean War and things like that, I think will also help I think him perceive uh, an end to some of these these issues that he might think would make him want to keep the nuclear weapon. Now, uh, okay, so he he's going to ask for some of these things. Uh, how far do you think the U.S. is willing to go, or should the U.S. be willing to go? I mean, if again, assuming that we're satisfied with with an agreement and it's verifiable and all of those things. Should we be willing to, you know, pull U.S. forces off the peninsula or some of these other, some of the more difficult ones? I think the economic ones, I think mm -hmm. Secretary Pompeo has already put those on the table. Um, and I don't think anybody thinks that, 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 you know, doesn't think that that's on the table. But some of these other ones, there were some statements that the White House was considering U.S. forces departing, then the White House sort of backed away from that. But, but if we got in return a real no kidding denuclearization, would it be worth it for us to do that? Um, I think regarding the, the troop levels, I think that's going to also be uh, include South Korea, obviously. I think, you know, it's very clear that the administration feels like having those troops there for as many years as we have has been one of the reasons why, you know, it's been a deterrent. Um, and they obviously, we're not going to be pulling any troops back until we feel that the situation is one where we feel comfortable pulling the troops away. So I don't think that's going to be one of the things that's going to be one of the first things there. Right. I think it's going to be much later uh, in the process where we feel comfortable that we can say we want to pull the troops out. Obviously, it's going to have to be based on the discussions with South Korea as well because they have a vested interest in our, our still being there. So, I mean, I've you know, read it that that's not, like you said, it's not going to be on the table uh, right now. That's not going to be one of the things we're thinking about. You know, because that's really much further down the line. Well, and of course, the troops on the peninsula predate the nuclear threat. I right. mean, they've been there since the end of the Korean War, and they were there for conventional right. deterrence. And the North Koreans still have a massive conventional capability that we still, even if we solve the nuclear issue, we haven't necessarily dealt with the conventional threat. And I think that's where you're talking about the South Koreans. That's would still concern them. They're still there. And they're still worried about all those artillery tubes that can rain soul and all of those things. And that can be a whole different discussion. I right. Mean, you can have, a, I mean, whether you wanted, to, whether they wanted to have a much more holistic process when they have negotiations with North Korea and look at other things besides nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles um, and any other kind of missiles, they may want to think about, well, what about the conventional side? I mean, is this something that we want to think about now? Is it too difficult to think about now? But I'm sure, like you said, that's going to be tied to the troop level. And of course, if you look at other examples we, between us and the Soviet Union, 
we tend to put these things in separate boxes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had intercontinental ballistic missile limitations, the START, START II, SALT, all of that. We had intermediate range missiles, and that was a different category. And then we had conventional forces Europe, and those were different categories. And so we didn't try and sort of package right. all of these things in one big, massive. They were each sort of dealt discreetly, because they're each complicated they're from complicated. a very technical yeah. standpoint. They're complicated, and also each one is you're reducing the level of, of security of a country. So, you know, it's very difficult to be in a, in a situation where North Korea would say, we're going to reduce, you know, uh, and go toward denuclearization and get rid of our missiles and also reduce our conventional. It's a lot. It's, as you said, it's a lot to, for a country, particularly North Korea, to take on. So I think maybe we can at some point do conventional. I think that's one of the direct connections to the troop level. Um, but it may be too much to ask uh, right now. We may just want to deal with one thing at a time. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, along those lines, let's let's assume that sort of we're dealing just with the with the nuclear problem. So again, so we've we've assumed that that Kim is sincere and we're sincere, and we've got we're we're moving towards an agreement. You know, obviously the the, the words that are thrown around is you know permanent, verifiable, irreversible. I think there's an acronym in there somewhere that people toss around. But obviously we'd want, you know, we're not just going to trust the North Koreans that they say, okay, we're done here. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's instructive that we're in an era now where, you know, we've just backed out of the agreement with Iran, which had fairly intrusive mm -hmm. mechanisms, um, but the, the president uh, and others indicated that they weren't satisfied with those mechanisms. There were some timelines and things like that. Now, North Korea is a different situation. It has an arsenal. Iran didn't have an arsenal. And, you know, monitoring nuclear production facilities, those are fairly big things and they're fairly easy. You know, if, if Kim were to take a few warheads and stuff them in a basement in Pyongyang somewhere, that gets difficult to sort of verify. Plus, North Korea is an incredibly closed society. Again, unlike Iran, Iran was not terribly open society, but people traveled there and there was a bit more openness and we've had inspectors running around there. So what are some of the mechanics of a of a real verifiable agreement, what would that might that look like for North Korea? Well, I think you, you brought out some some of the problems. I think uh, the fact that it is such a closed society, that it's been such a closed society, um, and even we have to speculate how many weapons they have, how many ballistic missiles, and how other kind of missiles that they have. I think the first thing we need to do is get a sense of exactly what does North Korea have. Um, and unfortunately, we may we may not be in a position where we have to re be totally reliant upon what they tell us. I mean, I think we have to. I, I would assume that we, we say, okay, we need to know what the baseline is, exactly how many nuclear weapons you have, what is your missile, what is your missile count, and then we have to somehow figure out how we verify that before we even get to the point where we're going to say, okay, now we're going to denuclearize and we're going to verify the denuclearization process and what kind of verification we're going to do. Um, it's going to have to be very intrusive, I would think. It's going to have to be one where, you know, even before we start serious negotiations, we've got to get a sense of what's out there and we've got to get a sense of where the facilities are and really get a sense of what if there's any place where they can do clandestine type work. Um, so it is going to be, uh, I would think, an, an inspection that's going to be uh, obviously, uh, like the one in Iran, but even more, I would think more so, because it is such a close society, and they do have much more. Um, and there's a whole lot of trust that has to be built into this whole process um, before we even, I think, get to the point where we can really trust that North Korea is going to actually do what it wants to do. So I think there's a lot that has to be done up front. And that has to be, I think, has to be brought into thinking about how we, how we get there, how we make it successful. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, 
we'll ask the North Koreans to tell us something. Mm -hmm. Our intelligence community will be telling our people, presumably there'll be a difference between those two pictures, mm -hmm. you know, what we think. And then, like you say, having to resolve sort of, so we're comfortable that we have a pretty good handle on what they got. And then, that, like you say, that's the baseline from which now you, you go to zero. So talking about the, the baseline, again, this is, again, the Iran agreement is, is, is I think, relevant here. One of the high, big criticisms of the Iran agreement was it wasn't, um, it wasn't broad enough. In other words, it doesn't deal with the ballistic missile issue. So it, it dealt with the production of nuclear materials and, and you know, the things you would need to build a bomb, but it didn't deal with the delivery systems of ballistic missiles. And, and clearly that would probably have to be part of the discussion with North Korea is both, as you said, the missile count and verifying that. I think the North Koreans are like destroying a test site right now, and that's as a signal mm -hmm. that they're willing to deal with the missile issue as well. But, but, and again, your background is very well suited to this. There's also some issues of, of chemical weapons and biological weapons. Again, it sort of gets back to what we were talking about before. How, how broad do we think we're going to make this? Is it all WMD? Is it just the nukes? Um, you know, what, what do you think there? Are we going to attempt to broaden that discussion? Because again, this was a criticism by the administration of the Iran agreement that it was too narrow. Well, um, I think that the North Korean situation, I think you do want to have ballistic missiles as a part of the conversation. And particularly, I think our, our, our allies in the region are going to want that. I think Japan and South Korea are going to want that. Um, so I think if you're going to talk about the nuclear weapons issue, you should also consider having some discussions on ballistic missiles. Um, the chemical and biological weapons, that, that they don't get as much attention. Uh, they do have those weapons. Um, if it's possible to bring those into the conversation somehow, I think that would be good. I don't know how successful that's going to be. Um, as I said, it's, and as you know, it's, it's just not getting any attention now, so it makes it difficult to imagine they're going to come in now and say, okay, we want to bring everything in. Um, if there is a way to do it, that would be good. But I think it's going to be problematic at this point for them to come in with the nuclear and the ballistic missile and also the other two. But that doesn't mean they can't, it can't be part of the discussion. That doesn't mean it can't be raised that, yes, we are aware that you have these weapons and it's something that we also very much are concerned about and we would like to think about how we could address that in the future. Well, and, and again, talking about, you know, as we mentioned, like before with the Soviet Union, if you, if, you, if you have discrete sort of narrow agreements and they work, you sort of build trust to say, okay, we trust each other, we're both complying with whatever the agreement is on ballistic missiles, now let's see, can we, you know, and there's a level of trust, so there's a, there's a building process. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that it strikes me, I heard somebody comment this, in some ways, you know, President Trump going now, it, 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 it's a, a, a little, uh, little backwards from sort of the normal process. I mean, normally what you do is you have the lower level people building up all the technical work and getting the agreements, and then the, you know, the presidents or heads of state come in and sign on the dotted line when something's actually get done. Again, the Iran agreement was sort of that way. There was 18 months or however long it was of, of building up to get it into place, and then you get sort of the formal signing ceremonies and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, so this approach is, is, is a little bit different, but again, the other approaches haven't worked in the past. So, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I've heard some people were initially skeptical of Trump sort of making this overture, but then other people say, well, nothing else has worked. Why not give it a shot? Do you mm -hmm. think that that sort of makes sense at, at this point? Well, I mean, I could definitely understand why the, there is a belief that why not we tried everything else. I mean, first, I just want to go back to your first point and say, yes, that is the way we traditionally have done it. 
when I was in the Arms Control Disarmament Agency in the 90s, um, and of course, even before that, that's the way we normally did treaties, and that's the way we did this, you know, uh, other uh, other types of treaties, even conventional forces treaties. So yes, I've been part of negotiations where you do all the hard work, and then the the leader comes in and signs it, signs it at, at the end. Um, and there's a reason to do that, and there's it's, of course you can get a lot of the details uh, out of the way that you're going to have to deal with, particularly on the, on these tough questions of denuclearization, where you're going to have a lot of you know, a lot of uh, steps. It's not going to be done quickly. It's, a, you know, this is not going to be overnight. Um, so doing it the other way is interesting because that means that if, at, at, at that level, at the summit level, you don't normally get into details. Um, I don't know if they're planning to come with some details. I haven't seen any sign of that. Um, but usually at the leader level, you make the major agreements and then the details are worked by the lower level. So even if he wants to go in and make a big deal and make a big agreement, uh, I'm not sure how he can do that without having at least some understanding of how it might actually take place. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, maybe, like you said, maybe this is a new way of doing it. Maybe it might be more successful because the other ways haven't worked in a North Korean case. Um, uh, but we'll see. we'll see. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, this is, we're sort of in a new world here and it's it's very different. I want to ask you, we've brought up a couple of times the the Iran agreement. Now, the president, when he announced that, you know, the United States would be withdrawing from the Iran agreement, it's known as the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, he mentioned, he, he made a linkage to North Korea, and he felt that by doing this, he sent a signal to the North Koreans, and it was a little hard for me, particularly, to understand what signal he thought he was sending, something about toughness, uh, you know, that sort of saying to them, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be tough negotiators, we don't just want something cosmetic. I guess that's what he was intending to say. Many people have commented they're afraid that the, the message the North Koreans took was, you can't trust the United States. Look, the United States signed up to an agreement. Nobody says the Iranians were violating the agreement. They were critical of the agreement, but of the terms of the agreement, the, the, you know, the, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the heads of the CIA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Everybody said the Iranians were complying with sort of the four corners of the agreement. So what do you have any sense of how the North Koreans might be viewing what happened with Iran? Um, well, first of all, I agree that uh, there were no signs, no indications at all that Iran was violating that agreement. So, um, you know, I, I have my own questions about us, us uh, leaving that agreement when there was no obviously nothing, no, 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 no rationale for us to do so. Um, and it, it also is question, it also makes you question about this idea about toughness. I'm not sure um, if that's seen as toughness or just violating and not doing an agreement that we said we would uh, abide by. So I think what it really does, it gives us a credibility problem. I think it really does put us in a situation where now we're the ones, we've always been saying, well, North Korea, you've made these few agreements and then you've gone back and, and haven't abided what you agreed to. But now we're in a situation of also being, being able to be accused of the same thing. Well, well, so did you. I mean, you made this agreement after you know, over over 20 months, almost two years of negotiating, leading to the JCPOA, and the country after after a lot of back and forth with Iran, um, and trying to get them to do you know do the right thing in terms of ensuring that they're not trying to build nuclear weapons. Now we had the agreement. There was no there was no uh, indication at all that there was a violation. You had IEA on the ground doing their inspections, um, and then we left. So I think we also now have a bit of a credibility problem. We can't bring, we can't wave that flag as much as we would have liked to before. We could say, well, you're the one violating. They say, yeah, but you did the same thing. So um, it, it, 
it will be interesting to see how that plays out at the summit. I haven't heard much so far from what North Korea says about that, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because I do think now it's a notch on our side in terms of our credibility. Yeah, and and to be fair, my understanding is in previous agreements with the North Koreans that have collapsed or efforts to collapse. Uh, there was some criticism on our side for not fulfilling certain commitments that we had made as well. So, so you know, just the level of distrust on both sides. Right. There, there, there probably are valid reasons for on both sides to distrust. But that's often the case in these things. I mean, you're not going to make agreements with people you trust totally because right. then the agreements wouldn't probably be necessary. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we didn't I mean, agree framework. There were things that we didn't do, um, and other things we didn't do either. So, I mean, I think there are obviously, but. In the in the in the in the in what you hear being said, very little attention is often paid to how much we didn't do. Right. It's always focusing what the North Koreans didn't do. But you're right. I mean, we didn't always. We we did have some things that we didn't do for this agreement as well. Now you've you've mentioned uh, I think a couple of times. There's some other countries that that have a critical role here to play. Uh, the president has been very clear that you know he views China as very important because he feels China can put pressure on North Korea to to make compromises. Mm -hmm. When they were testing a lot of things, the president repeatedly sort of made the point that he wanted China to, to be helpful here. Um, so China is a big player. Obviously, I think you mentioned Japan. Japan is very concerned. They're very close. The missiles range Japan. And of course, the most important perhaps is our ally, South Korea. I mean, the South Korean president has been very enthusiastic about these negotiations. He's wanted to warm up to North Korea for a while. It's part of his platform. He, he gives President Trump a lot of credit for making things happen. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how, how each of these countries sort of play into this? Well, I think one thing to keep in mind is we're this is not just a U.S.-North Korea nuclear weapons issue. This is a regional issue. It's, a, it's about regional security as well. And, um, you know, all of those countries in that region have a stake in what happens with North Korea and its nuclear weapons and its missiles, particularly since those missiles can reach um, other countries in the region. So it's about ensuring that there's a, a there's trust uh, amongst the countries in terms of what North Korea will agree to. There's uh, regional stability that's very important to help ensure that um, you know that North Korea, which said that they want to make sure that they feel secure before they even consider giving up their weapons. But it's also, you know, Japan, of course, I mean, the, the missile would hope to see well, Japan, so of course, they're concerned about the missiles. But of course, you know, there's South Korea. I mean, South Korea has had a really good summit with North Korea. There were, there were uh, things said about the ending of the, the, the um, you know, the peace agreement with the exchange of families. Um, so they have a stake not just in the military side, but also ensuring that other things regarding the relationship with North Korea can go forward. They have hope for what can happen in the future. So you need to have the, and of course China, which has, I mean, China doesn't want them to have a nuclear weapon either, they, but they have concerns about the troop levels, you know, they don't want to make sure that the troops don't come any closer to China. Um, they also have a history of trading with, uh, with North Korea, and of course we want to also make sure that everyone's on the same page. Um, and there was a concern when, when the summit with China and North Korea that maybe China would start wanting to lift sanctions before there was you know, any agreement on denuclearization. So you want everyone to be on the same page. You want everyone to have buy-in. You want everyone to feel as if they have a stake in it, that they, have, they do have a stake in it, they have a say in what happens. So you want to make sure that you include all of these countries because they all have a particular interest 
in what's happening in North Korea, and they all have a particular interest in the regional stability. Yeah, I think I think that's important. Um, you know, I I spent when I was in the Air Force, I spent a year in South Korea, and I got to know, uh, you know, the 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 people of South Korea, and and I think you brought this up. You know, for the people of South Korea, yes, there's the, the military issues and the nuclear issues, but this is one nation of people that is divided and has been divided. But there are families that, you know, haven't seen each other in a long time. They speak the same language. Um, you know, there, there's something, I mean, it's, it's obviously akin to what happened to Germany, you know, during the Cold War. And, and you know, the idea that the South Korean people, you know, they would love the, the, the tensions to be lowered to the point where they could sort of be reunited. I mean, it is in some sense a, a family division. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, uh, you know, my own perspective is we, sh we shouldn't forget that. And when you see the South Korean leaders so enthusiastic, part of that is it's, it's a cultural thing. It's, you know, these are, are we're the same people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it'd be, I guess, like if there was a hard border between California and Nevada and, you know, or something like that. Um, you know, they've evolved this two very different systems, uh, but, but ethnically, culturally, historically, they're, they're sort of one people. Mm -hmm. um, Anyway, that's just sort of, of, of my perspective on that. Um, the, um, okay, so, so we've talked about this. So let's suppose, uh, again, for the sake of argument, this doesn't go well. The president gets there, and for whatever reason, you know, North Korea is, is not, in his estimation, at all willing to come to any kind of an agreement that we think would be at all acceptable. Uh, they define denuclearization differently. Whatever it is, it doesn't go well. So, so, so where do things go from there? I mean, we were, we were talking not too many months ago about, you know, tensions really building and there was a fear of war. Are we, are, are we sort of back to that square? Is that what that would mean if, if this doesn't go well? I think there's obviously there's two ways it could go. I think if it doesn't go well, you can either look at the situation where we say, we want to continue to find ways that we can make this work. Um, it also depends on why it didn't go well. Um, so if it was a, you know, and you also have to look at, there are, there are people in administration who are a little more hawkish, who may use that opportunity to say, well, you know, of course it was going to work. You know, we don't trust them. We don't trust North Korea. We need to just go back to regime change. Um, so I think it's going to depend on why it didn't go well the, the tone of the discussions. Um, and for me, I would assume we don't want to go, we don't want to go backwards. I think if there's a way in which we can take where we, where we are in that situation and see if there's a way that we can try to move forward in a positive way. Um, maybe we can continue to talk with South Korea and China and Japan to see what else is possible. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily just say that's it, nothing, nothing we can't do anything going forward. Um, but like I said, on the other side, it may be an opportunity for those who don't trust North Korea anyway, who are skeptical anyway, who already are saying nothing's going to work anyway, to say, well, we told you so. Um, so let's go, let's go back to where we were with the harsh language and the, and the threats of, 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 you know, retaliation. And, you know, but I don't see where that leads either. I really don't see where that leads. So for me, I would like to go back and say, why didn't it work and see what's possible in the future. Yeah, so it's sort of, so in your, in your view, it's sort of, we shouldn't view it as sort of a binary. It's like either all good and it goes great and, you know, we're on our way to signing a great piece of paper and verifying, or it goes terribly and we're back to belligerence. There, there's sort of an in-between of, well, it may not have gone, it may not have met all the expectations we'd like, but, 
maybe even just we started a dialogue and mm -hmm. begun a process and like we've talked about you go back to sort of a more traditional approach of the people at the low levels begin to talk and say okay where are there areas where we might be able to work something out and go back like i said we sort of reverse course a bit but build back up to you know in, in rather than this very lofty summit between two heads of state there's this sort of Let's plot along yeah, in a more traditional lower, way. Lower level discussions, track to negotiations. There's a number of things that can happen that really have not happened at all. I think we can go back to try to see what happens. But I really don't think going back to the saber rattling is really, because obviously it's never going to lead us to anything positive. Yeah. I think we need to think more creatively. And I think that's why it's important that we don't make it binary. And I think we've been a little too doing that a little too much with this. I mean, too optimistic. Right. Well, no, saying that, okay, we're going to go in there and it's denuclearization. And we have, to, I think that that makes it very difficult to have a fallback if that doesn't work. You know, we should come with a package. And I'm hoping that, and I'm assuming there's people who are putting that together. We should come with a package of things that we want. And of course, denuclearization is at the top. We know that. But we should have a package of, you know, a, a, a fallback positions, fallback B, C, and D. You know, because it's such a, we don't know what's going to happen so, so, so much in this situation that we should come with, a, come with a package of options so that if it's not denuclearization, that it just, that means everything falls apart. And I'm not sure how much we're doing that because right now it's about denuclearization, but there's not a lot of, okay, and what else to help us get to that, you know, um, but that to me would be more strategic thinking about to go forward. Right, and, and, and so if nothing else, theoretically, you've, uh, like I say, even if you are unsuccessful at the denuclearization or the big thing, you've at least changed the atmospherics, in which case there's a better environment to talk, you, mm -hmm. you know, because the, 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 the harsh rhetoric and the belligerent, that makes it very difficult to even sit down and talk with people. Mm -hmm. But if you can say, well, we were unsuccessful in the big things, but, you know, we're talking. And let's 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 have the professionals and the, the lower level and the technical experts start that dialogue and and see where where that. Well, leads. take advantage of what's already been happening. I mean, there's already a lot going on with the different summits, with the you know release of the Americans, with the uh, opening up so people can go and see the you know what's happening with the test facility. They're letting the the the, uh, the reporters come in. Um, so there's they're already setting the stage for. Um, things that can happen in addition to denuclearization. And obviously denuclearization remains the most important thing. But there may be ways to get in and it may just not be the one summit. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, so uh, again, I'm sort of assuming a bad case scenario. So let's say it, it, it goes badly, it was binary, and we go back to belligerence and, you know, there are people talk about, you know, uh, uh, preemptive strikes or things like that. I mean, Obviously, we know, you know, war on the Korean Peninsula would be terrible for South Korea. We've talked about the, everybody talks about the artillery tubes, you know, that they could level Seoul with conventional capability very quickly. You know, there's millions of people in that city. Um, what, what would a conflict on the Korean Peninsula, I mean, what does that mean for the United States? And, and, and what does it mean for the world? Well, I mean, obviously, there would be, um, obviously, a lot of loss of life. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, that obviously will bring the U.S. even more into um, this very difficult situation because we've invested so much resources and time um, and people in, you know, maintaining um, peace on the peninsula. 
that obviously if something like that happened, we would be very um, obviously directly engaged and involved. And therefore, that would that would impact our relationship with other countries um, as a result. Um, and so therefore, it would be uh, one of the most important things that we would be working with our allies with and other countries as, uh, as well with to see how we can, you know, get them more involved in terms of whether it's, you know, I don't know about additional sanctions, but just anything to try to get involved in preventing um, future bloodshed in the region. And of course, there could be economic um, uh, uh, results as well, economic impact. I mean, South Korea is well. a major industrial a major country. Industrial country. It will have impact in the region. Um, uh, and it will also have impact with its partner, training partners. It'll, it'll have impact in the U.S., obviously, in terms of uh, maybe not direct, uh, immediate, but obviously it will be felt uh, like, you know, even in many ways, uh, these things are felt indirectly um, uh, financially. So it will have, and then it will have an impact uh, with our military, it will have an impact with our security, um, and also in our relationship with countries in the region, and in our relationship with other countries who have military, who have um, economic power to try to get them involved. And also at the UN, I mean, it just will have a lot of... Yeah, I mean, even our, even like you mentioned, our military, even some of our, you know, even some of the supply chains for our major defense industries mm -hmm. come, stuff comes from South Korea. Right. I mean, right. Samsung and others, there are major international players, as you mentioned, trade, I mean, Hyundai, Hyundai automobiles or whatever it is. I mean, there's there's huge trading relationships would be which would be disrupted, and actually probably not just South Korea, but the whole region. So if there's real conflict, I mean, trade with China, trade with Singapore, trade. You know, obviously uh, shippers get concerned when bombs start going off in mm -hmm. in, in a region. Um, you know, it, it it probably is pretty hard to estimate the the potential impact. It is it is hard to estimate that because I think people have been thinking mainly about the pure military side, but there are other impacts that could result from that on the economic side and, and our relationship with others, including obviously Japan, China, and South Korea, um, but others in the, in the in that particular Asian region and also with our relationship with other countries outside Asia. Yeah, and of course, you know, again, uh, to some degree, we've seen this movie before when there was a conflict on the peninsula before, you know, we didn't think the Chinese would come in on the North Korean side, and they did, mm -hmm. you know, and as we got approached up to the Chinese border after Incheon and all of that, then the Chinese sent 300,000 troops in and pushed us back south. So, you know, and, and again, the, as you mentioned, the Chinese don't want U.S. troops up on the border. Um, so, you know, where China would come down, I mean, I, I think it's quite clear that you said China doesn't want nuclear weapons in North Korea. China doesn't want instability mm -hmm. on the peninsula. The, the concern of North Korean refugees flooding across the Chinese border, God knows, in Europe, we see the challenge refugees pose. The Chinese would have a similar challenge. And so, yeah, the Chinese are very, are very, are hoping that you know there's success with the summit with the U.S. I mean, they obviously, like you said, they don't want they don't want instability on the on the peninsula either. So. Right. All right. Well, uh, I think we've uh, about explored uh, all the all the uh, sort of assets and facets of this. We we you know look forward to see what happens at the uh, at the summit on June twelfth. Again, I think. All of us hope that we'll, we'll be successful. This is a, a terrible problem. Um, it's been a problem, you know, since the end of the Korean War, mm -hmm. and and now the nuclear issue. Everybody is very concerned about. Is there is there any sort of last thoughts you might have to, to add here before we sort of wrap this um, up? I guess the, the last thought would I, I you know everyone should be I guess um, uh, 
I always use the word cautiously optimistic. Some folks don't even like to use the word optimistic. <laughs> um, but I think we should go in being realistic, but at the same time, um, you know, just just have a plan and have a strategy for, for um, of course, the goal is denuclearization, but to have a strategy that includes what happens if that doesn't work, what will be our next steps, what will we say to them if they say no, you know, and, you know, have a package that actually includes, you know, thinking about what do we do next. Um, and I don't, haven't seen that, but hopefully they're working on something like that now. You know, you mentioned that uh, one of the concerns with the Iran agreement is, you know, the plan B. Okay, mm -hmm. we've, we've withdrawn from the agreement and there's some critique that there's some, uh, it is not clear that the administration has a solid sort of plan B is where, okay, we pulled out and, and, you know, we want a new negotiation or something, but there's some concern that that hasn't been well, there, well thought yeah, through. Yeah, I don't really see a plan B. I think the idea was there was a lot of complaints about the Iran deal um, and, you know, President Trump told the Europeans, we, I want you to negotiate something. If you don't negotiate something by the 12th, then that, you know, we're going to pull out. Um, so I think he's he's laid the steps. He's let everybody know how he felt. And so when the time came to leave, he left. And I think that's, that's he said, I'm going to do it, so I did it. And so I think that was his plan. There wasn't a plan B. Um, so, no, I mean, there wasn't one, and I think they need to think of, always think of a plan B, you know, especially right. with North Korea. I mean, you've you've been involved in in these negotiations, and and uh, like you say, uh, you know, you, you go in with what you want, and then you you decide what what can you get, and is what can you get good enough? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I think every agreement we've probably ever negotiated with any country, it's is what is good enough. It's never perfect. Yeah, uh, and negotiations. I mean, yeah. we're talking about chemical, biological, nuclear weapons. You know, the START treaties with with, with the Soviet Union and with Russia. These are treaties that took a long time to get to. I mean, people talk about the, the JCPOA, which is about basically two years. The Chemical Weapons Convention took years. I mean, you know, I mean, so, you know, the, when countries are giving up major weapons that they see as necessary for their security, they're not going to do it overnight. It's going to take negotiations. So people should go in with the understanding that this should be a phased effort, that this should be a process. Negotiations is a process, it's diplomacy. Um, and the more you go in with that understanding uh, and understand that you are asking a country, even if you don't trust them, if you don't think they're going to do the right thing, they perceive these as for their security. Um, and it's not like the U.S. has just given up our nuclear weapons. I mean, we're about to develop more. So, you know, it's a process, and as, if we can go in with that understanding, um, and understand that this is not going to be done in one meeting. You know, it's going to take a while to do this. But if we're committed to it and they're committed to it, we can come to some agreement. But there has to be a little realism <laughs> about the whole thing. You know? All right. Well, I think that's a, that's a, a good note to end on, a, a somewhat uh, realistically optimistic uh, sort of perspective, I hope. And uh, again, I want to thank you very much, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. This has been a terrific discussion. And uh, thank all of you who are listening to this. We appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm anxious to hear from you what you thought, if this was valuable, if there are other topics you'd like us to bring in, we're, we, uh, we'll consider doing them. Again, I'm Rob Levinson, the Senior Defense Analyst at Bloomberg Government. And uh, please reach out. Uh, thanks very much, and uh, thanks for listening. Thank you for joining Women of Color, Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's WCAPS.org.